Hello and welcome to episode number five. I now have run out of fingers on one hand to count them of the Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior and I am back here with musician, composer, musical director, Hammer Delsimore player extraordinaire, John Whitten. Good morning there, Mike. And we've, well, we've both been to the UK this month, haven't we? We have. We have jet setters that we are. You've been up at the Edinburgh Fringe, haven't you? I have. I have. I was, I was in Scotland for... Got like two weeks in the end, seeing some great shows, some truly awful <laughs> shows, um, the, the most excruciating hours. Which category did you fall into in, when you did yours? I, you know, a professional never says. I think it's important <laughs> to, uh, to say. No, we, we had two reviews through from ours, one that was absolutely glowing and another one, um, <laughs> a second that contrasted with the first. It was the salt that made the dish taste better. You've you got to make Marmite work. A, a theatre for everyone is theatre for no one. I agree. And I agree. Other, other things I've been repeating to myself. <laughs> like a mantra. <laughs> but no, the cast did great and had lots of jacket potatoes. It was, it was a good time. How about you? What took you over the channel? Well, I was only there about 10 days, but I did like three recording sessions i visited like four different people's studios I, oh my goodness yeah it was absolutely nuts it was wall to wall so I'm, i kind of got back here and have been flopping around like a daily clock in a kind of exhaustion <laughs> trying to recover no that's absolutely where i am as well like i've had a couple of days holiday at the end but i've come back needing a couple of rest days post holiday well we're in the perfect frame of mind for a tea break then <laughs> we are we've we've earned it we can feel justified and smug in our tea breakness. We have both definitely earned this tea break, I would say. What is and as a reward for our sterling efforts, we have exciting news, super exciting news. We have a patron. <laughs> our first patron is here. Hello, Darius. Hello. Uh, hello and welcome. We clink our teacups in your honour. Oh, you're all prepared with two to do the foley. I've got, I've got one. <laughs> shh, shh. Uh, don't give the game away that we're not in the same room. <laughs> oh, I mean... <laughs> Damn. Blast. <laughs> No, it's just you're you're sitting all the way across our, our, our rich mahogany podcasting table. <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Which we only use for podcasting, and I can't quite reach you with this fine bone china. Yeah, so oh uh, yeah, many thanks to Darius for supporting the show and showing everyone else the direction they need to go. I mean on a, on a on a dare I say almost a serious note, we really do appreciate your support, Darius, and obviously anyone else who chooses to support. Despite what our incredibly convincing sponsor acknowledgements might imply, we are actually a totally independent and self-funded podcast and like all podcasts like this we won't be able to continue it in the long term without direct support from you so it really does help us if you do get on board and of course there are lots of juicy extras now on the patrons feed lots of exciting bits to jump into yes thank you thank you so so much and even more exciting news more exciting news i'm kind of at my limit i'm not sure i can get more excited at this stage i know because i think i can officially say that darius is my personal patron <laughs> Not only has he supported our Patreon campaign, signed up, he has also voted in the INLD grudge match poll in my favour. Oh, my. oh no. No! <laughs> one nil, no, one nil, one nil. Oh. <laughs> to think I thanked him for his generosity. I, I, I... 100% of Project Studio Tea Break patrons are on my side. <laughs> okay, okay. Can we, this is now a personal call out. Can anyone, can anyone who appreciates the, the quality content that we bring you and has taste in piano music, c can appreciate the gentler side of neoclassicism. 
you all get at me because I'm I'm kind of in need of help at this stage. She's out on a limb now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in need of a need of a little bit of support here. Oh dear. Oh. It's also been a good month for feedback. We've had Suri who has come back to us about our feature on mics for hand to hand combat. Was that episode one? I think it was episode one, wasn't it? Episode episode one or two. It was way back in the backlog. You see, now that we have so many, I'm, I know, I know, we can't remember <laughs> rifling through the stack of four. <laughs> so we have response, and I'll read it out. Here she goes. She says. Hi guys, I chuckled, I chortled, and then quickly began taking notes. <laughs> naturally, <laughs> naturally, I kind of hope never to find myself in a similar position again, but you never know, so I'll be sure to pack my Aston Starlight with laser pointed to dazzle anyone daring to interrupt me again. <laughs> Alas, due to myself being blinded by the light tunnel world thing I was performing in, I didn't see him coming in the slightest. Otherwise, I'd have used my hefty platform boots to add an extra almighty kick into the choreography. <laughs> Which I thought was, yeah, that would have been good thinking. No, we didn't think about footwear. We're saving that for episode 10. <laughs> Indeed. We gradually yeah. work our way through all the equipment and clothing. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you so very much, Siri, for that. Yeah. So, and we know what she'll be performing live with next time. I would assume so. Yeah. It's yeah. on the rider now. So, any venues listening, make sure that's there. Well, all I'd say is anyone in the audience, take a pair of dark glasses with you. <laughs> her stage band will be looking like the Blues Brothers. And looking in any direction but her, just kind of for risk of the laser light show getting a little yeah. bit out of control. <laughs> Is that a breaking news flash? That's a breaking news flash in from the Project Studio <laughs> Tea Break newsroom. Mike, do you remember, ah, oh gosh, something like a decade ago? You're testing my memory again. This is dreadful. I am. And I was sitting in your garden shed. Yep. And you predicted the rise of Spotify. Uh, yeah, indeed. And I did not buy it at all. You said that we were moving away from owning music and it was going to be a library model and you were just going to have access anytime you want. And I just couldn't... God, you know, I really had forgotten that. Yeah. I thought you were just using a figure of speech, but actually I completely remember no, that No, no, we were there. I was, wow. I was doing some yes, indeed. like recording cleanup on, on a session. Um, and I, I thought you were absolutely full of rubbish. I, c- I couldn't imagine. <laughs> How times change. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> to this day, when I've got total faith in every word that comes out of your mouth. Um, I, I, I couldn't imagine packing up my Walkman and just relying on some internet company. Your mini disc player. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where do those go? <laughs> Landfills. Okay, so we're we're thinking Spotify. This this huge streaming music giant. I'm. I'm not sure we'll have anyone who doesn't know what it is, but it, it's the largest streaming majigger out there. They've got, got something like 180 million. Wow. Sorry, that's that's absolutely not true. It was a very big number. They have 140 million active users. Still a big number. Not as big as the first number <laughs> I said, but still a big number. And 83 million of those are paying subscribers. 83 million are paying subscribers? Yeah. That actually staggers me. That's more than half of their users. And despite this, they have never made money. (laughs) (laughs) What a business model. They are still hemorrhaging cash. Well, yeah, but I'm rather inclined to disregard some of those reports. Because it's like, no, they've never made money in the US where they're registered for tax. But somewhere on the island of Nevis, (laughs) they're making a lot of money. Someone somewhere is eating caviar. Yeah, in the Bahamas somewhere, or British Virgin Islands, or Guernsey. But... While I'm sure that there's some wealth going around somewhere, um, th- this isn't like an Amazon situation where they are managing to make exactly zero dollars um, every year <laughs> by some incredible accounting magic. They are losing millions Whoa. every year. So this is an unsustainable business model that they're working on at the moment. And so they are trying anything they can to um, 
to try and make a bit of cash. As you would. As one would if one were losing millions of dollars. <laughs> Despite millions of paying customers. Recently revealed that while it had a revenue of more than 2.9 billion euros wow. in 2016, there was a net loss of 539 million. Oh, that's got to hurt. I mean, that, that seems like more than just some Cayman Island figure juggling. I mean, do you know what that means? Tell me. That means that we are more profitable now that Darius <laughs> has joined us than Spotify. <laughs> Darius, thank you for bumping us up the leaderboards. Although, truth known, we were more profitable before our, our <laughs> prize patron who needs to listen to some more Jan Tiersen and Iron Audi and just kind of realise... Let it lie. Realise the genius he's missing. Just sour grapes. I, absolutely not. You can change your vote on that thing, right? Like just, just to, if, He's going to be flip-flopping just to toy with us in episode case, to episode. In case an evening with a bubble bath and some rooibos tea kind of brings him round to the, to the straight and narrow. So anyway, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on and graduate emotionally from this yeah um <laughs> and so so it's most recent thing that it's tried to do is that it's got sponsored tracks all right so basically as as a label you can you can pay it some money and it will insert your tracks your labels tracks on random users playlists well like a kind of new age payola you can go to a playlist listen to a specific set of songs and songs you don't want to hear will appear on them it's still in trial i hope it doesn't catch on yeah it sounds horrible yeah it sounds like the future though doesn't it horribly <sighs> it's a bit like featured ads isn't it it's going to happen. It is. I and mean, the whole world is going going to poo. Um, but I'm here to talk about how the whole world went to poo a couple of years ago. All right. With a story you, you may recall of Spotify being accused of having lots of fake artists on its platform. All right. I've not heard of this one. Fill me in. Okay. So a couple of years ago, Music Business World, which is a real website despite its, <laughs> its interesting name. Oh, sorry. Music Business Worldwide. Even worse. Um, claimed that Spotify's um, playlists, its major playlists, were chock full of fake artists, which is a weird phrase. It is weird. Because I wasn't sure if it was implying that these are not real people or just not real artists. They don't wear enough black. and Or whether it's all Milli Vanilli. So what, what I was claiming is that um, Spotify was commissioning music, buying the master rights for it. Oh, I see. Mm, and then putting it on its on its top played playlist. Sneaky. Because the, the business model normally goes that when music is played from Spotify, Spotify takes some of the money for that and pays some of the money to the artists. But if Spotify owned the masters, then, um, well, they wouldn't need to pay anyone. Yeah, yeah, of course. As one label exec said, it's watering down our beer. And it was taking away money from, from real artists and giving it to fake ones. A whole year later, Spotify did release a statement and it said, we do not and have never created, quote, fake artists and put them on Spotify playlists. Categorically untrue. Full stop. <laughs> that can only mean one thing, surely. I know. I know. <laughs> did, did they not have a copy editor to just give a quick run over that and be like, ooh. Have they not learned ooh. from the history of categorical statements? Ex no, exactly the vibe. And so, so and they, they went on, they denied that they owned any master rights. They said, you know, we're not a label, we pay royalties on, on every single piece. But what's being claimed now and, and what various anonymous sources have been saying is that that's true, but they have a special deal with these basically music libraries uh, that they pay 0.00. .00 
2% royalties or something like that. Yeah. So it's a little bit shady. I mean, Epidemic Sound in Sweden is a, is a large music library company which, which buys music outright from artists, meaning that I could send them a song and it could become the most popular in the world and I wouldn't get any money from it. They would pay me for the song at the beginning. A flat fee, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a certain kind of production music contract that, that works like that, yeah. Exactly, and I mean, it's... it's these aren't all shady. I mean, this is how a lot of, of adverts and TV shows get their music. Yeah. Um, because it's simpler for them. You know, they're not negotiating through a publisher to an artist. They just buy the music and, it, and it's good and simple. Yeah. But this stuff is being presented as artist work, as, as stuff owned by the artists on the artist page. It says that it's done that way. Yeah. And people are getting a little bit tipped off. The, the reason this came up is that there were artists with no social media, with no website, with no footprint anywhere else on the internet, except for two tracks on Spotify, <laughs> both of which had more than a million plays. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, something doesn't add up. <laughs> I'd love it if some of these people went on tour and you, you just see and it's just some kind of <laughs> hairy-ass 50-year-old kind of with a beer belly kind of sitting there in his, in his little like ranger the, workstation. The, um, the music that that's coming from these fake artists is pretty predictable stuff. It's not all across the board. It's stuff for playlists like, and these are real names, Peaceful Piano. Oh, right. Piano in the background. <laughs> Deep Focus. Sleep. <laughs> Ambient Chill. Music for Concentration. So, I think I file all those under allergic reaction in my playlist hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Me too. Me <laughs> too. It's not great. Very easy to produce stuff. It's mostly solo piano. There's a lot of acoustic covers. Piano solo covers. It's like, oh, I've got 15 minutes this morning. What, what song can I vamp through and sell to a production music company? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, part of me thinks, well, what's the issue? If people want to listen to this kind of music, and Spotify has a business where they have the choice to either pay an artist for their unique and personalised rendition of Sleepy Piano or can just buy some library music, well, you know, why not? Yeah. There's slightly more worrisome murky area is when they create a playlist and get a huge number of followers yeah and then trade out all the popular tracks for their own tracks that they don't really have to pay for oh. so for example this is from billboard yeah in february 2017 spotify's ambient chill playlist which has over 505,000 followers as of press time switched out 16 of their tracks by established oh. electronic acts such as brian eno and bibio for 28 songs oh. by epidemic sound which is this swedish oh, production music so company poor, isn't it? i know i know oh. eight of those tracks were removed but at time of press it was still 65 percent of that playlist was library music oh that's just so poor isn't it and the thing is to me that seems to be undercutting the whole concept of a playlist mm -hmm. the reason to sign up to a playlist is because it's curated content because you feel that someone is giving you stuff that they actually care about mm -hmm. and fundamentally it just feels like it's a corporate thing that's matched up the sound of those things that have been curated with the stuff that isn't it's basically advertising through the back door they're using those tracks that they're putting in that aren't the well-known artist ones as a cash generator. Mm -hmm. So they're using stuff that is curated to draw you in, and then they're making money off the tracks that they've dumped in. 
So really, it's no different than them between every song putting an ad, <laughs> is it? No, except, of course, the ads get dropped if you're a paid subscriber, but these money makers, they stay in. It doesn't matter whether you pay them or not. They're, they're still there. Yeah, so you're fleecing your subscribers twice over. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, Spotify. <laughs> Once you've signed up to a playlist for specific songs, you don't want to have to go in and check that it's still... It's like having milk delivered every day and then just to find that they're slowly watering it down <laughs> and hoping that you don't know. Or that they know you like milk, mm-hmm. and so just from time to time they, they send you leading brands of soya milk. <laughs> or some kind of um, white drink that's a little bit like milk that they've been able to source independently that's a lot cheaper than real milk. Creamy, lactose-adjacent fresh drink, for example. <laughs> You've worked in the marketing department, I can tell. That is so poor. Oh, God. And particularly at this point where I think one of the things that people most want now in the internet age is curation. Mm. You know, the the stuff that is there is continually expanding and we only have so much attention. You want someone who pays attention to a certain niche to go, well, these are the things to listen to. So Spotify are basically undermining the most important element of having playlists. (laughs) Oh, congratulations, Spotify. But can I be a massive snob for a moment? Go ahead. There is part of me that... Have you switched yet? <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is me <laughs> in absolute, absolute and utter snob mode. There is, there's a small and shameful part of me that thinks, if you are someone who goes and you click on peaceful piano in the background ambient chill, <laughs> does it much matter if you're fed sawdust? You've only got yourself to blame. <laughs> a little bit. And the fact that this practice has had to be like, a media spill means that no one's noticed. Yeah, yeah. And for all that that's kind of sad, like, it means it's worked. If they're happy with the service, then Spotify have got away with it. I know. And to be fair, the history of corporate anything is the history of corporations trying it on and trying to fleece some more money out of their subscribers and seeing whether they can get away with it. It's a bit like if Dairy Milk slowly started replacing the chocolate in their chocolate bars with sawdust. With fine <laughs> sawdust that they painted a little bit brown. And no one noticed. If the people eating the chocolate were just as happy eating the sawdust, does it matter? If they were like interviews and going, yeah, actually, I quite like the improvement. <laughs> it's got this great texture to it. Yeah, I just, it is shady. Do you think that the Cadbury's cream egg is actually an extension of this? Maybe it was originally an, an original egg filling. And just over the years, they replaced it with the funny fondant thing and no one noticed or they preferred it. Are you, are you suggesting that the original Cadbury's cream egg was a sort of scotch egg hybrid but rather than, rather than wrapping it in breadcrumbs and pork, they just dipped a hard-boiled egg into chocolate. Is that... No, no. Soft-boiled. Soft-boiled. Oh, please, it's funny. Oh, that's revolting. Whereas the, the Cadbury's cream egg isn't revolting at all. Okay. It is a little sweet for some days. It's just been an evolution. It's not changed functionally. <laughs> okay, I, I take it upon myself. I'm going to go out sometimes afternoon, buy some cooking chocolate, melt it down, and coat a soft-boiled egg in chocolate. And try that, and I'm going to let you know. I'm scared, but I'm excited. It's... It's a culinary adventure. It's a culinary adventure. And then I'm going to get a huge amount of money from Cadbury's cream egg. Yeah. Or you'll get sued for nicking their copyright. One of the two. One of the two. Look, m- money's going to change hands. Millions <laughs> yeah, of pounds yeah. is going to flow into or out of my bank account. That sounds exciting either way. I can get on board with that. Yeah. Well, I feel inspired now, having seen that Spotify of Facepalm themselves. 
<laughs> so hard. In such clear fashion. And, and so awfully, and yet no one seems to mind. We've just accepted that their palm is on their face, and that's the order of the world these days. Yeah, it should be part of the logo. Maybe you could kind of onomatopoeically rename it, call it Spatify. Or the, the sound of a palm being driven in. <laughs> yeah, it's like... I really, I'm going to need your your face palm foley isolated so that so that, that can be sampled for posterity. Okay, Indeed. one more time. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> did, that, did that have enough emotion in it? It did. That 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 audible embarrassment and disappointment and and pathos. Yeah. It's amazing. Excellent. Print it. Well, I mean, I've got two face palms. One is a kind of a face palm in passing because I did it literally just as I was getting ready to do this podcast. Oh, blimey. Okay. To try and avoid fallback going through the microphone I'm using, I've got one side of my earbuds in and the other side, I've wrapped the earbud in um, masking tape. Mm. And so I got some masking tape, um, but it's not my normal masking tape. I use kind of good branded quality masking tape. Okay. And I know that this masking tape isn't very good. And so I, I kind of peeled off with kind of a feeling of, oh, this isn't very good masking tape. And started wrapping it around this little earbud, <laughs> thinking to myself, God, this stuff's so rubbish, it's not sticking at all. It's okay. dreadful. I was wrapping it around, and then I realized as I got close towards the end of the strip <laughs> that I was putting it on backwards. <laughs> And my, my built-in kind of masking tape snobbery had blinded me to the fact that it was sticking more to my fingers than it was to the earbud. This was going to be my first question. How sticky are your fingers on an average day that you didn't notice? Well, it is, to be fair, it is spectacularly, it's really just rubbish masking tape. I, and as a serious point, I think um, one of the things I would advise anyone who does any kind of recording work is get branded masking gaffer tape. Because mm. honestly, I've tried unbranded versions that are like half the expense and it's just not worth the effort. The masking tape like falls off. The gaffer tape <laughs> leaves all sorts of horrible residue or just residue pulls marking. up floorboard splinters when you take it off the floor. It's just such a false economy. Anyway, so that was my first face palm. So this is a public service announcement. It is. Support <laughs> the valid and legitimate... Attention all recording engineers. Exactly. <laughs> and any feelings on LX tape? LX, well, I don't know that brand. Is that like electrical tape that kind of slightly rubbery plastic That's one. Well, um, a lot of people use I don't really use that very much. Really? What do, what do you use to mark up a floor or something? I'd use gaffer or masking, either of the two. Okay, that, that's controversial. Okay. But, I, you know, that's what we're all about here. Wouldn't, I mean, gaffer's going to be hard to pull up and put back down again. It's going to... I've never had huge troubles getting it up again. I mean, if you take it up <laughs> within... <laughs> <laughs> take your mind out of the gutter, Mr. Wynn. <laughs> No, 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 let's, let's dwell. Let's dwell, Mike Senior. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I excellent. have never been more sorry that you are the one who is going to edit this final cut together because I have an existential dread <laughs> that particular bit of innuendo may not make it to Darius and Co's ears, which would be Oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't possibly um, deny them the joy of that particular one, which is just that was epic. quite a lot of joy. Anyway, but yeah, back, back to the point. I never have any trouble getting gaffer off the floor. The trick is not to rip it up too quickly. If you pull it comparatively slowly, mm. it usually comes up perfectly cleanly. Okay. Well, maybe I need to give this a shot. I mean, I know some people do use electrical tape, and I can see that it would be easier to get off than gaffer would be. Mm. That, that would definitely work. And sometimes, actually, if I have a like a delicate floor, then I'll use masking tape for that, because that's easy to get up, and it sticks down pretty well, particularly if it's decent masking tape. I guess the good thing about LX is that it's, it's small rolls, so you can easily carry five or six, and they're all different colours Yeah. around. So if you're spiking up a stage and you need, you can get one colour for like where the mic stands are going to go, one for the drum kit. And it's, oh yeah, I can definitely see the appeal of that. You know, especially in live settings when you're changing bands in an 
and out. You can whoosh stuff around. That makes a lot of sense to me. So it's a valid alternative. LX, colourful LX tape, but if you're going to use masking or gaffer, use the proper stuff. However, the masking tape face palm was only the hors d'oeuvre in our face palm meal <laughs> this month. The tip of the face palmic iceberg. That's the one, yeah. I'm in a privileged position as being a kind of music tech pundit that I have the opportunity to face palm on a large public stage <laughs> in many eventualities. And I was just thinking back through some of the face palms I've done while in the middle of supposedly telling people how to tell their ass from their elbow and then just completely <laughs> mucking it out myself. Oh, so uh, there are two here. There's one that was probably the biggest group of people I face palmed in front of. Okay. This was um, a college thing. This is a while back, actually. This is almost 10 years ago and I was doing a recording and mixing kind of feedback workshop at one of the local colleges when I was back in Cambridge Mm. and your story last month about forgetting that the kick drum was playing oh yeah about completely zoning it out reminded me of this face palm because basically I was I was advising some guy on his drum kit rock band kind of backing track recording and I was listening to the snare I was listening to the room or something I was concentrating on okay and was kind of processing stuff and doing little subtle changes and whatever else. And then one of the people just put their hand up and said, "Yeah, do you think the hi-hat's a bit too loud? <laughs> and you know how sometimes someone will point something out and then all of a sudden the massive crashing, thundering reality <laughs> just pours in on you all of a sudden. And suddenly you realise your whole outlook yeah. has been completely compromised. And I suddenly thought, yeah, what is that hi-hat doing? <laughs> Why is that the main thing? Oh, I did my best to salvage some shred of credibility in that situation. <laughs> going, yeah, I've just been kind of concentrating on the snare for the moment. <laughs> I, t- I tried to chill it out, but it was just, I was so busted, really, was the, was the point. Oh, God, there's nothing you can do when you're got when you're oh, got like that. Oh, it was really that. bad. I mean, so I sometimes wish that I could ignore hi-hat in a lot of drum kit recordings. Often it's <laughs> just way too loud. It's a common problem with uh, Project Studio drum recordings is you get just hi-hat everywhere and a hi-hat mic that's horribly harsh that you just chuck away instantly. But when you're concentrating on other things, you can lose sight of these things and it can lead to some very awkward feedback sessions with someone trying to be nice <laughs> and saying, do you think, I mean, could we just... Maybe slightly background. The hi-hat's, hi-hat's great. I'm loving the hi-hat. Maybe we just kind of push, like we, we bring other stuff maybe a little bit more to the fore and you listen and you realise that that's all that's happening in the track. Just, and they're it's... just being polite to try and save you from the embarrassment that you've already just clearly <laughs> sunk yourself into. Yeah. And everyone's, no, it's like the elephant in the room. Everyone realises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're thinking, well, how do we kind of uh, let him know about this? And, and all you want to do is say... Break it to him gently. Is, is say, okay, I've just heard it again. You know, the, the whole track is pumping on the master compressor from the hi-hat. And that, that's not ideal. That's not the sound I was going for. The problem is I have this leaking suspicion. I don't remember the, the aftermath of it enough. Maybe it just blotted out. It's too painful. But I have a feeling that I didn't do what I should have done, which is basically say... What an idiot I am. That hi-hat's all over the place. I think I tried to kind of style it out, and that's mm. just really never a good look, is it? When you obviously completely cock it up and you're trying to kind of salvage your dignity. I think I tried that, and it really didn't work. No. So uh, in future, I've been more inclined to go, yeah, what an idiot I am. That hi-hat's too loud. Why didn't you tell me earlier? It's always hard knowing how to back your way out of that. But it's not the most embarrassing face palm in that kind of environment that I've done. Oh my goodness, Mike. Fortunately, the most embarrassing one was actually in a one-on-one 
mixing thing. Okay. I mean, all mix engineers do this. It's just I had the opportunity to do this while supposedly showing someone how to mix. Supposedly <laughs> helping someone out. So we, right, got to the, we got to the stage and I was advising them about the mix. And I said, well, you know, I think the thing this mix needs actually is some automation of the lead vocal. Mm-hmm. And just because his system was different than mine, I said, well, I'm more used to doing this within Reaper. Mm. Um, I'll take a backing track of your mix and I'll take your lead vocal. I'll put them in Reaper and I'll just automate it in Reaper to show you what I'm talking about. This all sounds totally legitimate so far. I can't, can't see anything going wrong. Yeah. And so we, we got into Reaper and we were automating away for maybe 10 or maybe 15 minutes. And we were going through and we were like trying to kind of demonstrate, <laughs> yeah, th- this will make your vocal clearer and it'll make it more consistent enough. We can keep it at a lower level and it'll still be intelligible. <laughs> and then, fortunately, the thing I thank my lucky stars for is that I spotted it first. Can I guess? I really want to guess. <laughs> um, rather than taking a stem of the vocal track, <laughs> you were automating the hi-hat. It's pretty close. <laughs> Oh my god! I thought I was joking. I, I really was, thought I was. Joking. I was automating the wrong track. <laughs> <laughs> I and I think I can't remember for sure, but I have a sneaking suspicion I might have been automating the backing track. Oh my goodness! Which was me. actually doing exactly the opposite of what I'd hoped to be doing. Of course, because any time you wanted to bring up the vocal, vocal I was bringing line, up the backing track. I think it was that. You know, sometimes when you're in that kind of situation. <laughs> And there's a little voice in the back of your head that goes, there's something not right. Little alarm bells are ringing. something a bit wrong. And I just yeah. thank my lucky stars that I was the one who spotted it. I mean, I did my best to try and kind of justify it by saying, well, you know, this is clear confirmation bias. We're looking at what's on screen and it's telling us that what we're hearing. Because we were, I mean, we were thinking, yeah, this is getting a bit better. And it was clearly doing the opposite of what it was supposed to be doing. It's much nicer to do it by yourself, but it's it can be so disheartening if you're, if you're working on your own mix and you're tweaking the reverb yeah. in just like these little ways to get the exact sound. And you're, you're telling yourself that you've nearly nailed it and then you've nailed it and then you realise that the effect has been bypassed the, the entire time. There is no engineer on the face of the planet who has not done that multiple times. I mean, I certainly do it frequently. In fact, I did a, uh, a video series, a real-time mixing document in video form. Yeah. And I did that within the first, I think, four or five hours of content. I did that about five times. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, it was so stupid. I actually started putting a facepalm count on screen. (laughs) I think that's the only thing. You've got to do that. You've just got to be like, yep, this happens and it's going to happen more. Yeah. So so I think we can all learn from this kind of thing that confirmation bias is always trying to bite us in the ass. And it's done it with me on multiple public occasions. I think you're absolutely right. Oh, I've just thought of another one, actually. Oh my goodness me. Okay, hit me up. And in fact, this was in front of an even bigger audience. And actually, I didn't realise this until after the fact. I did those big um, Project Studio Expo presentations where there are like four or five hundred people in the audience at the AES show in New York. Mm. And I was trying to demonstrate some audio example thing, but I didn't have fallback of the audio examples I was playing. Okay. And so I, I knew it kind of wrote which tracks I needed to flip and whatever else. But there was one example where I chose the wrong folder and flipped between two different audio examples that were clearly completely different than the ones I'd just been talking about. <laughs> and no one in the audience, like, said anything about it. Oh, wow. But the AES, they recorded all their Project Studio Expo things and their members can view videos of them. So you can clearly see me in the video <laughs> with the wrong audio example playing out. And you see how that shows that this <laughs> snare position is so much better. Oh, goodness me. But, I mean, the fact that no one mentioned it, it shows up that there's a lot of trusting your gut when you're mixing and and no one wants to be the person who says, I don't hear the difference. Mm. Or that's It's like that famous uh, psychological experiment that they did at one uh, university. It was my, my uh, kind of psychoacoustics professor at university told me about this. Um, it was something like 
they had subjects come in and wait in a waiting room mm. and then pulled them into what seemed like a different experiment just as helpers because <laughs> they said they didn't have enough staff. Mm. And they sat them in the room with this white-coated psychologist and in another room was the person who was supposedly the subject of this other experiment yeah, yeah. that could be heard but not seen. And then in front of them was this big, like, Baker-like dial with the numbers on. Mm. And then the psychologist would ask this other subject who was in the other room questions. Mm. And whenever the subject got the wrong answer... He was clearly kind of being given some kind of electric shock or something. Mm -hmm. Then from time to time, the psychologist would say to the helper, oh, can you just turn that dial up a bit more? (laughs) And every time he did it, this kind of blood-curdling screams would get even more... More blood-curdling. It was just a deeply unethical (laughs) psychological procedure. But the shocking thing about it was that almost all the people just kept turning the control up because they were being told by the guy in the white coat that it was all right, despite the fact that the guy was screaming fit to expire in the other room. Mm. It was like an actor in the other room. Yeah. The uh, the professor said his personal hero was the was the one guy who was the kind of outlier in the in the project yeah. who came in. He got about halfway up the dial and was so incensed by the thing that he just laid out the psychological guy, no! the guy in the white coat. He said he's my hero. He's the one kind of vestige of humanity. <laughs> that that is shocking. I mean, I might be misreporting it, but that's my memory of his account of it. That I think I have heard of that one. That's the Stan- Stanley Milgram. And to be honest, I think I rely on that effect quite frequently to try and. <laughs> I just brazen it out. I just look like a recording engineer, have a fancy set of headphones, and then hopefully that'll just that'll keep them quiet. I think that's the key. And never underestimate the power of the phrase subtle processing. <laughs> you can do nothing to attract and, and call it subtle Indeed. processing. Indeed. The, the one I was thinking of is you don't even need a guy in a white coat. They, they, they brought some people in and they showed them two lines on a flip chart, and one was clearly longer than the other. Okay. And they said which line is longer and they went around the circle of participants and they each had to say which line was longer yeah and they found out that if three people before you gave the wrong answer the clearly wrong answer you'd say it too whoa that's a great one and these weren't lines with funny squiggles on these were just horizontal lines clearly clear different lengths that's wonderful and if if three people said oh it's one it's one it's one then you would be like "Mm, yeah no yeah one that's peer pressure at work isn't it oh that's I love that it's incredible I mean basically that is the excuse for the 80s isn't it (laughs) 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 to kind of give some broad cultural context this is why the 80s yeah right basically okay good enough people wore those shoulder pads that (laughs) sooner or later everyone was doing it Oh, those are quite some face swaps. I kind of want to see this video of you swapping between... Yeah, I can't quite remember which one it was now. I'm, How I'm, convenient. Memory fails. <laughs> which brings us now to our, our much-awaited question and answer section. The mailbag, once again, is... um Bulging. I'm like, it's overflowing. Mm. It's overflowed. Mm. It's burst at the seams. And not at the seams, like mid-fabric. Wow. It is bursting. Yeah, oh, yeah. the, the, the burstingness of that. Guys, please send us questions. <laughs> please send us questions. Like, <laughs> I, He yeah, couldn't live the lie any longer. I'm lifting the veil a little bit and parting the dressing gown for you to see the, the sad and desperate man behind. Send, send us questions. Even if it's, why should I send you questions? We'll answer that. We'll riff on that for five minutes. That's fine. Send us questions. Even, the, even if they start, why, oh, why? <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> Make them questions you've recently been asked and can't be bothered to answer yeah, yourself. We're, we're happy to take the scraps. Yeah, absolutely. That's where we do our best work. <laughs> it's where we live most of our lives anyway. So send us a question. Be like Dennis Feversham 
from Hendelbrookshireville in Sussex. And Denish asks, We all know songs with minimal or straight-up bad production, which are wonderful works of art regardless, because the music is just so damn good. I, th- I think we could go on ah, yes. for an hour or so on those. Uh, what is your best example of the opposite? <laughs> True... <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> Truly awful music made magnificent through remarkable production. Now, I... So we're kind of looking for the kind of music industry equivalent of Kevin Costner's Waterworld or something. <laughs> exactly that. Any Mad Max film you care to, you care to mention. Avatar. We're looking for the, a musical Avatar. You said that was kind of successful. <laughs> I was just thinking something like Waterworld, which is an absolute bomb and had huge amounts of money spent I, on it. What I, what I want to find, though, is one that, like Avatar, lacks any kind of interesting story, hmm. any compelling characters, but it just looks so darn pretty that you kind of can't resist it. Yeah, yeah, and I get the, the concept. I think there are a few options here, so we'll maybe bat them around a bit. Okay, yeah. Hit, hit uh, one of the ones that I don't really get and that people in music tech just rave about is uh, Steely Dan's Aja. Ooh. That one has, has been a, like a cornerstone. It won like best engineering Grammys and all the engineers who worked on it have been dining out on that forever. Mm-hmm. It like had Al Schmidt and um, Roger Nichols and Elliot Shiner and they all like have been harking back to this being the greatest bit of production. It was just right at the end of the 70s. Yeah. But it's just so kind of clean and cerebral and it's like everything's perfect and it bores me witless. Right, I just, right. Uh, I just can't... I, I mean, sold lots of records and people always use it as a touch point and I just can't... I can't get onto it. It's nothing to aspire to. I mean, that is one of the, the kind of cast iron production landmarks right. in terms of music industry and it just leaves me completely cold. But I mean, there's another one like that actually I can think of which is Tubular Bells. Right, yeah. You've got this one fragment of melody that's a bit interesting because it's kind of a bit polyrhythmic yep. and that's about it. It's like film music without a film. Pretty much. Film music without a film. That's it. That sounds like something that would be on one of the chill out playlists. Because it was in The Exorcist, of course, famously. Oh, was it? I've still never seen The Exorcist. I need to get that, that. added to its fame mm. beyond just it being successful at the time. It launched the V2 record label, which is another thing. But again, I just think oh, it's just a lot of b***ing around with instruments <laughs> over this kind of ostinato. <laughs> it's like, oh, cheap trick. I've had enough already. Yeah. And actually, by the same token, I have the same problem with Ravel's Bolero. Really? Yeah. What is so clever about taking a tune and just adding instruments in fact i heard another podcast recently that was making a case that ravel's bolero might have been the outcome of the onset of a mental illness for him no yeah really yeah i'll have to post the link but it's actually quite a compelling argument for it i thought you know what actually yeah (laughs) but i've always been bored to tears by that piece for the same reason just because it's this repetitive idea yeah it's like there's no new music it's just more, more stuff. <laughs> Throw the kitchen sink at it. It's like how many times do we have to repeat the same bloody tune? But you could say the same thing about Nimrod by Elgar. Not really. It is. It's that same tune, just round and round and round and round. But not many times. You don't have that much time to get bored of it. That's true. Okay, it's like four times. Yeah, yeah. Which is perhaps more forgivable. Um, do you have any ideas on this? I mean, I've got some other ones, but I got, I got, I got a couple. Yeah, let me try that one more time. I've got a couple. Oh, what about what about this? Is not this is a brilliant piece of music, but just a. a Counterexample: Have you heard Jesus' blood never failed me yet? I have a CD, in fact. Now that's one of my favourite pieces in the world. Interesting. It's um, what's the guy's name? Julian, someone or other? Gavin Bryars, I think. Gavin Bryars, that's the one. Together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if the same tune again and again and add instruments has ever been a justifiable label to put on any <laughs> piece of of music or sound art, that surely must be the proto repeat and add instruments. Yes, but I think there's a there's a kind of an aesthetic decision there 
and he's coming at it basically as a minimalist. Mm, mm. And in that kind of context, yes. if you buy into the minimalist concept, yeah, yeah. I think it's justifiable to do that and say this is a piece of minimalist art. Right. I don't buy into the minimalist concept, <laughs> but I quite like the quality of the recording he got. And that appeals to me in its own right. And I could listen to that for a long time just because I really like the performance that he's used to be his base example. Yeah, that's true. It's very different if it's trying to be a romantic orchestral piece. It's like Moby. You know, all those things on play. You know, I mean, he just got some absolutely cracking source material. Mm-hmm. If you took the samples out, you'd shoot yourself before you got to the end of play. <laughs> Honestly, it's so tedious. <laughs> but, but as you say, the source material, if you start with a brilliant sample, then you can get away with most anything. So, okay, my first go-to with this was a song that I was obsessed with as a late teen, early... No, just late teen. Um, so last Tuesday. <laughs> wait, I, I'll have you know I'm growing facial hair. <laughs> Thank you, thank you very much. Um, is your game by Will Young? Okay, I'm not sure. I know this one. It was a, it was a flash in the pan pop single. I recommend going and having a listen for no other reason than I will now definitely <laughs> than to, to to refresh your memory. It's got funky bass lines. It's got choirs in the background. Oh, there you go. And it was so exciting and really worked for me until I one day sat down with my guitar and decided just for the fun of it to put together an acoustic cover <laughs> and realised there is nothing going on. Oh my goodness. The, the, the scales you know, fell from your eyes. The, the predictably stodgy pentatonic scales um, <laughs> fell from my eyes and, and simultaneously appeared. I mean, it's a bit performance, but it's mostly just great pop production, yeah. which manages to completely conceal the tepid, tepid song <laughs> hiding underneath it. And I, I wasn't even annoyed. I was just impressed. I thought, my goodness, how do you do that? That's real professional work. It is. To have that much form and so little content. <laughs> exactly. It was all form <laughs> and literally zero content. Um, it's like a cake that's entirely made of icing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's novelty lettering and fondant animals all the way down. <laughs> all the way through. No, no sponge to be had. Uh, there's another one I was thinking of, which was um, a huge hit, actually. What's that? Um, by Shakira. It's one of the best-selling songs of all time. It's uh, the song Whenever, Wherever. I know it extremely well. But have you listened to the lyrics? <laughs> and also, there's no real melody to speak of. I mean, the, the melody is so pedestrian. It's all the beat and it's all the production and there's nothing else. But I've got a couple of choice moments from the lyrics that are just such fabulous doggerel. Quote me the wit and wisdom of Ms. Shakira. Here you go. Here's the first couplet. This is the second best couplet in the, in the song. You've got, <laughs> I would climb the Andes solely to count the freckles on your body. <laughs> but that pales into insignificance compared to, lucky that my breasts are small and humble so you don't confuse them with mountains. <laughs> And not only is that just nonsense, but it's also just completely doesn't scan, doesn't rhyme, doesn't anything. No, no, I, yeah, I wonder. Oh, it's fabulous because, of course, like all of Shakira's output was um, originally in, in Spanish. Yeah, it was her first English language album, I think. Well, there we go, and there is a Spanish version of that song, and I wonder if the lyrics make any more sense <laughs> in Spanish. Um, that may be something I have to look up for next for next month because. <laughs> You're right. There is it's also one of the perviest videos I've seen in a long time. I was researching it for Mixed Review. Sure you are. And it is just jaw-droppingly kind of misogynistic. <laughs> it's like this is clearly one-track mind cinema. Direct and to the point. Um, so basically, I think everything that sold that song was not the song. 
as far as I see was, it. Was besides the song. I can see that. The blend of styles, the groove, the atmosphere, the touring, all the stuff except the song was what made that. So I think that's quite a good candidate, I would say. I mean, to be fair on Shakira, she does have one of those voices that is instantly one of a kind and instantly recognisable. You can hear her sing one phrase and you go, that's Shakira. Mm-hmm. And I think that you've really got to credit her as a singer that she has that much vocal character. There are not many singers who are that recognisable that quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's gold dust in, in any kind of commercial music production if you can recognise a vocal that quickly. Yeah. And there aren't many people who can do it as quick as her. It means that without even that much of a fascinating melody or lyrics that mean literally anything at all, <laughs> it's interesting to listen to. Like, there is something yeah. to listen to. It's not the same as... I don't know, who's a particularly unremarkable or just undistinctive singer working out there today? Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue. It's not like hearing Kylie Minogue do a cover of that song, which would be similar to like a general MIDI pan flute. Yeah. Um, sort of knocking out these rows of notes. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on Kylie here. I'm trying to think of some alternatives, but yeah. <laughs> trying to think of alternatives to Kylie Minogue. Well, she has had some classic songs, though. Um, oh, who would be an alternative to Kylie? Uh, well, Danny Minogue. <laughs> 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 there you go. I, I believe that's actually the first line on Danny Minogue's website. Danny Minogue, an alternative to Kylie. Uh, <laughs> Not quite as good as Kylie. Oh, bless bless the sisters and all their endeavours. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, this question is kind of obliquely related to an issue of mixed referencing for me. Oh, yeah. Because I actually have quite a lot of tracks that I've collected over the years that I use as kind of quality benchmarks for various aspects of mixing in different styles when I'm working on different people's work. When I'm I'm putting mixes together, it's something I can compare against and know where I stand. So even if my ears are tired or I'm listening on different speakers, it grounds me in something that I know. you got got a reference track for... Exactly. And I've had some of these tracks for like almost 20 years. Hmm. And I kind of add tracks to them over time and whatever else. It's kind of an ongoing thing. But... There are plenty of tracks in there that are almost embarrassing to play in company <laughs> from a musical perspective, but it's because I value them from a production perspective. Right. Like there are, uh, for example, there are a couple of Andy Wallace mixes. There's a, a puddle of mud <laughs> and a limp biscuit track. There's a limp biscuit track. I know, I know. It's it's really it's embarrassing to admit it. But they're great mixes by one of the great rock mix engineers, a guy called Andy Wallace. He did like Nevermind and he did Run DMC's Walk This Way and he's just done so much great stuff. And then he went on to work with Limp Biscuit. Yeah, he was the person that people went to in the kind of 90s, 2004, that kind of rock stuff. Rage Against the Machine, uh, Linkin Park, uh, loads of people. Wow. Anyway, so okay, uh, I've got that because I, I rate his mixes. I've got those slightly embarrassing things. Um, I've got Craig David's Seven Days on there. No, you haven't. I do. <laughs> Amazing. Again, because the mix is beautiful. The low end is fabulous. It's beautifully just the clarity is fabulous and the, mm. just the way it fits together. And so I have to kind of like look behind me and check there's no one else listening before I play that one. <laughs> I've got, like, third-rate album tracks from Cascadi, you know, the people who did Evacuate the Dance Floor. I only know that song. Evacuate the Dance Floor! Well, yeah, exactly, no one knows anything else. But there's other stuff on that record. There's a beautiful vocal sound, and I took that as a reference point. As a vocal sound. I've got Let's Get This Partay Started, the pink track, (laughs) as a kind of an end stop, because that's so distorted. And that kind of provides a bit of reference on how distorted you can make something. Okay. There's a Pussycat Dolls <laughs> taking over the world. Whoa, okay. It's a, it's a Dave Pensado mix, which has huge amounts of low end. And so again, I use that as a kind of an end stop ref- reference. So there's quite a lot of stuff like that in my mix reference collection. That's amazing. This is a deep dive. If, look, if your professional reputation can survive this episode, Mike, <laughs> I think we can consider you untouchable. We can officially say... <laughs> we are bulletproof. There is literally nothing that you said on an Entertainment <laughs> Weekly interview six years ago 
go that could even get in the way of your eventual presidential nomination, <laughs> which we are which we are building to with yeah. this with this podcast. Indeed. So when I'm playing my like puddle of mud and limp biscuit, and I, I spot someone coming in, I quickly switch over to the to the like rage against the machine or tool or something. <laughs> something that's a bit more, more credibility. Start stroking your chin to killing in the name of or or something along those lines. Okay. No, no, I think re- reference tracks are vital and often. Extremely embarrassing. And I think it's important that you separate the sonics from the musical content. Because it's very easy. I find quite often people, when they select mix references, they select them based on whether they like the music Mm -hmm. rather than whether they're actually useful from a production perspective. And I would make an argument that if you as a producer are working on a good song, you will likely do less. It's when you're working on the (laughs) shit that you've got, the the, the rubbish, that you've got to find... (laughs) Sorry, Chipmunk. Uh, you've got to find creative ways of holding the listener's attention. So maybe there is a logic to it. It's these slightly less interesting musical tracks which have the best, yeah. you know, who've spent longer on yeah, I can see that. on these auxiliary sounds. Yeah, you've got to try harder when you're dealing with your, um, what was his name, uh, the, the Young. Will Young. These Will Young, yeah. Fresh-faced nothing people. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> Now, this month, in honour of our new patron, oh. hello, Darius. Wonderful, man. It's going to be What's Your Jam with a special Toast Foley. Here it comes. There we go. Okay, do, don't know about you listeners. I didn't, he- I didn't hear anything. Is this, is this just kind of toast sitting on a table? Well, the thing is that our patrons are buying us biscuits. Darius is the first person to buy us biscuits, so I felt that it was important that to honour this momentous day, I do toast foley with biscuits. <laughs> so I was, I was just using a couple of biscuits. Unfortunately, they're, they're, they're like chocolate hobnobs, so I've just been having to like <laughs> lick chocolate off my fingers. Well, uh, let me come for you for a moment while you do that. Bit of a nightmare. See, and hobnobs, that's the biscuit I would have chosen as well. You've got like good abrasive texture. And it's very sound on sound too, because the Studio SOS column is always going on about chocolate hobnobs. <laughs> So I felt Hobnobs had to be on there. It's a tribute back. Although I think Darius is at the Jaffa Cake level. Right. But you see, Jaffa Cakes wouldn't make nearly as good toast foley, I don't think. They wouldn't make any noise. They wouldn't make any sound at all. Yeah. It's kind of gentle flumping. <laughs> kind of. I think, I think the one that I'm going to try, the one that I've got to get hold of for next time, is a rich tea biscuit and a plain <laughs> Hobnob. Okay. Now... Plain for ease of grabbing and no chocolate on fingers. Oh, okay. And and for the, 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 the texture of the hobnob. But then you've got the, the rigidity yeah, of yeah. the rich tea, which I think would create yeah. a kind of a good scrape. Mm. I mean, it has the advantage of a Jaffa Cakes as well, that there are never any Jaffa Cakes left. <laughs> I mean, when do you ever see two Jaffa Cakes just lying around? No, no. I think they're unstable particles. <laughs> they are. They're, they're destined to entropy. They just evaporate into the ether. <laughs> You can have a sealed packet full or an empty packet of. There's no middle ground there. So now that we have slam dunked the toast foley. As ever, as we always do. That was my second basketball metaphor. I think I said slam dunk already. <laughs> okay, so it was your second use of one basketball metaphor. I don't want to be overselling our <laughs> yeah, yeah. sport bona fides here. <laughs> now that we've kicked that toast foley into the top left-hand corner. Ooh, we're queuing up the eight ball of comedy um, <laughs> to, the, to the back left pocket of informative content. Yeah. So now that leads us into what's your jam? And it's a it's another vintage instalment. Uh, looking back in, t- in my my timeline, just recently the German pensions bureaucracy thing required me to dig out all my old degree certificate and stuff to prove that I'd either been in full time education or 
or work since the age of 17. Okay. Now, when I was 17, I was still doing my A-levels. So the only way I could prove this was to go back and dig out my old school reports. (laughs) (laughs) So I just pulled out my old school reports from my A-level year. Oh, amazing. Oh, it was diamond. There were more out loud laughs reading those things <laughs> per hundred words than anything I've read in ages. And I've been reading like PG Woodhouse. It's, oh, I recommend oh, it to anyone. Okay, well, okay, that is a solid benchmark to be working on. I've got to give you some background here, though, to make it make sense, right? Okay, get, send me up some context. I was doing my, like, two years of A-levels. Now, for American listeners, that's like the last two years of high school. It's that age group, mm. and you're doing these exams, usually a small number of exams called A-levels, that you use to be able to qualify to then go to university. And universities then can make offers based on what you're predicted to get in your exams. And if you get those results, then you get into the university. And if not, then the next year round, you apply again with the results you have and go to whichever university you can get into on those Mm. results. Anyway, that's a quick explanation. Now, I had decided that I wanted to apply for a music degree at Cambridge Uni, mm-hmm. for which at the time you needed straight A's. Right. And I was doing three subjects, which was music, maths, and chemistry. But <laughs> I was doing far too much like general music playing and arsing around with my friends and just doing mm-hmm. ridiculous stuff. And I was flunking out badly in maths and chemistry. Oh dear, okay. And there's some, there are just some choice quotes from my reports at this time. <laughs> this is just before the exam term. Right, okay, so when you're really in need of a bit of a confidence boost, a bit of a morale enforcer. And my chemistry teacher comes out with this. He goes... As we have started revision, I would have expected his fluency with the ideas to have increased. But it is almost as if he is meeting some of them for the first time. Oh, wow. (laughs) He scored 50% in the mock exam, so is not, at present, heading for more than a C grade. And then brilliantly, the thing that made me laugh like a drain was that he follows up with a rather kind of sheepish, um, he continues to be cheerful and positive in class, as if he's trying to soften the blow. (laughs) Oh, that that has the ring of a man scraping the bottom of the positivity barrel. Just, totally. You know, nice haircut. I can't fail his punctuality. Or it's that kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. And also, off the back of that report, it kind of sounds like he he's cheery and positive despite everything. You know, completely some... deluded. <laughs> he needs an A, and he'll be lucky to get a C. Presumably delusional. The math teacher was, was pretty much similar. He goes, uh, uh, this was just right at the end of the first A-level year. So this is before I started the second year, where I was already well on this track. He goes, at best. At best. <laughs> at okay. best. He is alert in class and produces good solutions to the problems that I set him. Okay. But at other times, he has an air of dreaminess and his work assignments have been known to be late or incomplete or discouragingly weak. <laughs> There is still some time for things to click into place. A good C grade is still a realistic target for the exam in June. (laughs) Well, that'll buck me up. Right, and this is you needing an A. Just fabulous. (laughs) And then just before the exam term, where we had another round of reports, he goes, Michael continues to look dreamy. But I think, underlined, he is trying to make good use of his time. Some of his marks and tests have been promising. And in the important mock exam, he scored 62%, which is a good grade C. (laughs) It's the classic damn with faint praise. It is a little bit. I love how, how frequently he references your dreaminess. I mean, I think he meant to say matinee idol good looks, surely. <laughs> That's certainly how I read it, as vastly inappropriate as that would be. Chisel jawline can't add up for, for Toffee, but, but still. Basically, that was it, yeah. I, I've been trading on my dreaminess ever since. <laughs> no, I, I have this image of you in math class. And then there was my like overall housemaster's report. Well, at the right. end of first year, he finished his report with... He has much to do. Mm. And then the following report, just before the exam term, he goes, 
Michael did not take the advice contained in my last report. <laughs> he has even more to do. <laughs> oh my goodness, those are, those are strong. Oh, I've been laughing so much about this. Now, it's perhaps unsurprising given this kind of given the kind of ringing endorsement I was getting on my teachers at the time <laughs> that I didn't even get any kind of offer, no matter how high, from, from Cambridge at the time. Well, of course. Of course, all those lot were writing my references and grade predictions mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, the, the, the question I might, if, if you don't mind sharing with our vast listenership, what did you come out with? Well, what's amusing in hindsight is that I actually got the grades I needed. No, you got three A's. <laughs> But it's in a, in a way that I would not recommend to anyone. <laughs> how, how on earth from your dreaminess and lack of engagement with the material? I mean, basically, the reason I was dreamy was that I was completely starved of sleep because I was staying up all night to do all the stuff that I half did. Right. And, you know, after that second round of reports, I thought, you know, the exams are next term, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I could kind of pull my finger out. <laughs> so I pretty bit. much went into boot camp, put myself into boot camp. My During the Easter holiday, which in the kind of school I was at was a month. So for a solid month, I basically did nothing else but work on maths and chemistry. Just crammed. Wor- and wow. then when I got back, okay. me and a friend of mine went to the library and got out every single past paper for the A-levels in maths and chemistry and did all of them. Oh my God. And I managed just about to pull it off and get the grades I needed. But I mean, I had to defer because of course the university didn't believe I'd get it based on my no, references. No, I can, I can see why. And then I just about managed to get in on the following year. But you can imagine the understandable bemusement of my maths and chemistry teachers. Yes! Oh, I yeah. would have been completely flummoxed. And my poor parents, I mean, pity my parents, who were Ringing getting their these hands. reports back, like, term after term of, like, he's just hopelessly deluded and no chance whatsoever. Hair turning greyer and greyer by the minute, I'm sure. Well, that's more than enough face palming and, <laughs> and generally cringing about old school reports for one month. Right. It's just quickly time to uh, thank our sponsor for this month. Absolutely. We have Cuddle Down, Cuddle Down, the duvet manufacturer who have just uh, started releasing their um, acoustics version of duvets. Very excited um, following for Following research by Sound on Sound that shows that duvets are often almost as uh, effective as <laughs> acoustic foam with the same thickness. You can now get a variety of TOG ratings mm-hmm. that are specifically designed for acoustic situations. They have special fixings. You can hang them up on the wall. And uh, we're in talks. We're in talks. We're hoping to get a Project Studio Tea Bake branded duvet cover that you can fit to these lovely bits of bedware. Just imagine. I mean, and Mike's actually, um, he sent me some of the proposed artwork mm. for these. They, they do look stunning. It is, of course, just both of our faces. Yeah. Um, huge and on your duvet. So you can... And even... if you don't want that in your bedroom, I don't know what's wrong with you. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. You know what? That That's on you at that stage. <laughs> that's a problem with your taste more than us. Uh, we, we have one with both of our faces or you can buy two mattresses, one with each and um, actually pop it us as you listen mm. to the podcast mm. to make us talk to each other as you go. <laughs> it's a great product. Indeed. It's a great product. I'm, I'm excited to see it. I, I cannot wait to hang that up on my wall behind me rather than this rather drab grey duvet yeah. that's doing my dampening job at the moment. And do please follow our first Patreon subscriber, Darius. Yay! Oh. Follow him, follow his lead. He's going to lead the army to support this podcast. Brave trailblazer. Um, and of course, access all the extra material. There's going to be some extra news stories that we weren't able to get in last month because there was just too much stupid news coming out of Nam. <laughs> too much stupid news. Yep. We've got the Smash Mouse, haven't we? And we've got um, yes. Oh, we've got we've got Antelope's renowned clocking, giving a new meaning <laughs> to renowned clocking. Oh yes, no that that bit was that bit was fun. That had me giggling for the rest of the week. And obviously, keep an eye on our social media things, John. You've got the absolute information there. We are. 
we are on the tubes. We're on the net at facebook.com slash pstbbooks and twitter.com slash pstbtweets. So uh, you can find us there. Come along, say hi. Or you can email us at tbreak at projectstudioteabreak.com and head over to the site to catch the other episodes if you've missed them so far or generally to give us love, comment on things. <laughs> Post questions, please. Questions. Oh my gosh, questions. Anything. Look, you know what? If it's not a question, I'll just take a comment someone's made and put a question mark on the end. That's that's my that's my threat for next month. If we don't get real questions, we'll just we're get, gonna fabricate one. Well, yeah, there we go. Okay, so we finished our cups of tea. Thanks for listening. See you next month. Thank you.